Hey everybody, thanks for listening to the Fanzine Podcast. Just before we get started with the show, this is your host, Tony Fletcher. I want to invite you to sign up for the weekly newsletter over at tonyfletcher.substack.com. It'll give you updates on this podcast, my other podcast, all forms of recommendations with a midweek update, a long-form weekend read. Sign up is absolutely free. There are interview archives, uh, additional podcast features, and you will be able to to see uh, more of the fanzines that uh, we're talking about on this show. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. Thanks again. Now on with the pod. It's the jamming fanzine. Fanzine. Podcast. I mean, the thing about a fanzine was holding it in your hand, right? And looking at the way it had been put together and the punk way it had been put together, quite quite frankly. And it had a staple in it, you know, and and that was that is a fanzine, right? In late nineteen seventy-seven, as a school kid in South London inspired by the DIY culture of punk, I started a music zine. I had no long-term plan and certainly no idea that over the next decade jamming would grow to become a national, even an international monthly magazine. And I certainly could not have imagined that in 2021 there would be a full-colour book collecting together what we have called the best of jamming, selections and stories from the fanzine that grew up, 1977-86. to For the Jamming Fanzine podcast, I'm hosting conversations with some of these former contributors, photographers, musicians, scenesters and school friends, and seeing if we can't, through the rose-tinted glasses of history, offer some sort of perspective on the heady days of that heavyweight decade. It was just the joy of going, yeah, this is really good. There are some really good interviews in here. There's all sorts of bands in here. You should see it. What is it? Oh, it's a fanzine. Yeah, great. Because there are a few around, but none, obviously, that I thought were as, as, uh, as good as jamming. Do you want to buy a copy of Jamming? Episode 2, Mods and Sods. And welcome back, everyone, to the Jamming Fanzine podcast. My name's Tony. If you haven't figured that out, I'm the one started this fanzine that became a magazine that went kaput that 35 years later has been revived and compiled into this beautiful book, which is out now at the point that you hear this for certain in the UK and Europe. And depending when you're listening to this, it will be out or will have been out since December the 2nd in the rest of the world. Now, we did get off to a great start with episode one, in which I talked to some of my closest school friends from back in the day, that being the late 70s, about the birth of jamming. We're going to fast forward a couple of years on this episode to 1979. There was a mod revival in full swing in the UK. There was also a skinhead revival in full swing in the UK, which gave us two-tone, of course, and more besides. It also gave us a little bit of violence, these uh, revivals that were going on, because there were also rockabillies around. The punk rockers weren't going anywhere. Not uh, Some of them, at least, were growing their hair longer and longer vertically, upwards from their heads. And new romantics were just around the corner. And in short, pretty much everybody who had anything to do with music made a fashion statement about it. It made for some tense times at gigs and on the streets, and we will discuss that in this episode. But it also made for some great, great music and, you know, some okay music. And we have representatives today who are all of them made great music and, I believe, continue to do so. They are Mark Bedders, Bedford of Madness. I think you've heard of them. Guy Praddy Pratt, what some people call him Praddy, I don't. And if you haven't heard of Guy, you will certainly have heard of some of the people he's played with since he was in the band Speedball back in 1979 and for a couple of years beyond. And then we also have my great friend Brett Buddy Ascot, who was in the Chords back in the day. Probably most people's idea of the most successful of, quote, mod revival bands, for my money, absolutely the best of them. And all three of these people are absolute gents. They all know how to talk. They all know how to laugh. And in the conversation that follows, we do plenty of both. 
Uh, we edited this conversation down under the one hour mark. We don't want it to be prog rock length. We'd like it to be punk rock new wave length. Just enough time for you to get inspired to form your own band, uh, publish your own fanzine, or perhaps figure out which fashion movement you want to revive next. I'll be back at the end of the show just to wrap things up. And without further ado, episode two, the Jamming Fanzine podcast. This is an absolute joy and a treat for me because not only have I known all of you since 1979, 1980 or earlier, but I'd like to consider I'm still friends with you all. And the three of you all contributed to this Best of Jamming book, for which I'm really grateful. And I think it came out looking utterly fantastic. What we're going to do is talk about, obviously, the era that uh, we got to know each other in and to what extent fanzines played any major role in that or to what extent even even jamming played any role in any of our lives. But as much as anything, it's a wonderful opportunity just to uh, to, to talk and reunite with people. I'm going to go in chronological order of of knowing people. And that would, uh, Guy, you and I have known each other the longest. So do you want to introduce yourself and, and remind me where we first met? Because I remember. Yes. Hello, Guy Pratt, bassist, alcoholic. Um, yeah, we met because was it your brother was going out with the daughter of my uncle's partner? They, they were doctors at the on the Aylesbury estate in Camberwell. And there was this Boxing Day party they had every year and we always used to go. And one year you were in a bedroom. I think you had a guitar and you were trying to play it was a substitute or pinball wizard. And I showed you how to play substitute. You did. I think you showed me how to play pinball wizard as well. Well, the intro. Yeah. I would have been really showing. I was really showing off. And yeah, I might've known it. It's because it's actually quite simple. Once you figure it's, it's all one finger at a time. It's classic <laughs> Pete Townsend with that bass, that ringing bass note, funnily enough, the ringing. Purcell, like which comes from Purcell, he says. It's that, yeah. It, it's actually, yeah. A couple of years later, it would have been around probably about June of 1979 when the Mod Revival was in full swing. I had uh, been taken to see a band called Speedball by their manager. They were a four-piece until two of them, I believe, got put away for... Um, for stealing gear from music shops. So that's yes. why the band was so well-equipped. Yes. Hmm. And uh, they decided to uh, double down and um, maybe maybe not risk that in the future by getting one person for the two of them. And they, they hired you. <laughs> and steal so much. Yeah. And I walked into uh, Alaska Studios to interview Speedball and Roger had told me, the manager had told me, we've got this great new bass player, you'll love him. And I walked in and you were like, mate, remember me? The Boxing Day party. And um, and that was that. I would have, I would have, been, I would have been desperately trying to talk down. Mate, remember me for the Boxing Day. I recall you wearing a uh, Mod Target t-shirt. All right. Because uh, that was the era. And talk, talking of Mod Target t-shirts, in, in between, and probably just a few weeks before I met Guy, um, I'd have seen you your band play for the first time. Uh, so, Buddy, introduce yourself. I'm Brett Buddy Ascot. I used to thump the tubs for the chords. I now play with the Fallen Leaves and the 79ers. And uh, there's been a lot of water under the bridge since the earlier incarnation. But I met you when you were a cherub-faced 15-year-old at the Wellington, Tony, you were at the side of the stage. Well, you were the guys. So I've only just put, sorry, no, we need to get to bed, but he'll have a big, he'll have a big piece, obviously. Um, because, because the first time I heard about the mod thing was when I was work, I, had a, I worked as a sort of office junior at this graphic design company. We always had a capital radio on. And I walked in the office one day to the tail end of an interview with Clem Burke, and he says, to, and they said, well, thanks very much. So he went, yeah. And I just want to give a shout out to all the mod bands out there, to the chords, the power. And, and I was like, what? What? And it's the first <laughs> time I heard of the mod thing was Clem Burke. And he mentioned your, he mentioned the chords. So you wow. were the first band I heard of. I don't think he ever saw us, but um, I did meet him and, and uh, he bought me a drink in the ship. <laughs> there you go. So, yeah, I saw you. I would have seen you, buddy, uh, first week of May. 1979, when I uh, turned 15 at the, at the end of April, managed to get to five gigs in five nights. And the third time I saw the chords, two nights later, when you were filmed for London Weekend Television, Janet Street Porter, and the, uh, the manager of uh, the Wellington, sort of, uh, as you allude to, or actually, as you write about in this Best of Jamming book, seeing that I was way too young to be in there. And we were just confirming before we started recording, there's no way you would get into a gig like that nowadays. No. Decided that rather than have me dancing around in front of the stage and showing that there were underage people in the venue, would put me behind the stage, which meant the camera was on me throughout. 
and confirmed that they were letting underage people into the venue. But uh, in in the two nights between my first seeing you and then seeing you for uh, the film show, I kind of felt like I saw the rise and fall of the mod movement in about forty eight hours. <laughs> <laughs> that's about how long it. That's about how long it lasted. <laughs> and I was I was actually doing some homework for this um, get together, and uh, according to a book I was reading, uh, Mark a group that uh, uh, you have been in uh, on and off for your entire life, changed their name and had their debut performance under that uh, name that same first week of May. Yeah, my name is Mark Bedford, also known as Bedders, uh, and I've played in Madness for a very long time. Hey. And we, I mean, I, when I'm thinking of meeting you, I think I met you before we ever did an, in- Madness ever did an interview for Jamming. I'm pretty sure of it. Because we played with, we did play with some mod bands. We played with Secret Affair, I remember, at the Lyceum. Or there was a mod band sort of bill at the Lyceum, which we were on. And also we played with Secret Affair in Aylesbury Friars as well, probably just before we had a record out. So what was your... Where do you, where do you remember meeting me then? Well, I, my memory of that is that um, moving on from be, doing the fanzine, I got to start writing for The Face. Mm. And uh, Nick Logan had what was the editor and founder of The Face mm. and, and, and something of a publishing genius, really, at least a visionary, had a very, very smart idea. Madness were getting a lot of bad press at the time and also kind of wouldn't speak to the press for reasons we will probably get into. And he said, well, what better way to have a, you know, cover the band that only that sort of appeals to 16-year-olds in Harrington's and short haircuts than to send a 16-year-old on the road with Madness. So originally I was invited to go on tour with you, but I had my O-levels. So I couldn't do it. So after they were done, I got to come up to Nottingham with you where you were recording a, a couple of nights for TV at the Theatre Royal there. And we did, um, right. we did a, 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 I got to stay in a posh hotel for the first time, a, a far cry from the flea pits I stayed in with, uh, with Guy, with uh, Speedball. <laughs> <laughs> and all kinds of debauchery went on actually in that 48 hours. And at, and at the end of it all, um, I got not one, but two songs dedicated to me on the encore of the second night. And you dedicated Deceives the Eye to me for reasons that I've actually spent the rest of my life, a little like a Zen koan trying to figure out. Um, I, I, I think it was somehow something to do with the fact that I, uh, I don't know, I think you had just... Um, Madness won me over, to be quite honest. I mean, that's the God's honest truth of it. I came in somewhat somewhat fearful of this uh, very, very successful band and the position I was in. And a lot of that fear was well-founded, actually. I learned in that 48 hours that I would not pick a fight with any members of Madness. But at the same time, you were all just like absolutely charming to me. You all took me under your wings. And uh, I'd like to consider we stayed friends, friends ever since. Of course, yeah. That's very nice. I mean, I, I will say that we weren't far away from our... O levels and A levels at that point as well. I mean, I must have been 18, 19. So it's funny. A, y- a year is 10 years. Well, exactly. Yeah. When you're that age, yeah, it is. It's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was actually looking at that. And, and yeah, a guy, I think you were saying you were 17 when you were in Speedball. I and... was. Yeah. So I, w- I wouldn't have got into the Wellington now. Right. Yeah. You'd be carded <laughs> now, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and Mark would never have made his debut at the Hope and Anchor. Um, because you would yeah. have been so you would have been 17 when Madness made the debut there. That's right. Uh, a lot of the early gigs, yeah, were definitely. I was just about 17, so yeah. And and it's really when you think about it. I mean, you seem so much older to me, to be honest, because I was 15. And you know, when I met you, you'd have been 18. I'd have been 16, and it, you know, it would have been like Big Brother stuff. But I mean, mm. you were a pop star at the age of 17. For you, you know, for you, Mark, to 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 go from sort of joining a band to being in the charts in the space of, what, a few months, a year? Yeah, it would have been, I think, yeah, a year and a half, probably, something like that, but still re- incredibly short time. Uh, but the possibilities were open then, and they, you know, that was the thing that, had, that was the thing at the end of the 70s, what it gave everyone, and after punk, it actually blew it all open for a lot of people in a lot of different bands, and we were one of them, you know. I think it had a lot of, we had a lot of luck meeting the specials at, at the right time as well, I would suggest. Um, that was an amazing confluence, wasn't it? The fact yeah. that there, because you there was no, it was you just happened on the same thing, right? That's right. No, very true. Yeah, and we, I mean, they had, I'd seen them play with the Clash, funny enough, as the Coventry Automatics, when they were a lot more punky, but they did have the reggae element in, and then they appeared again as the Specials, and they played at the Hope and Anchor, and that was the night that we saw them, and we got, you know, we started talking to them and. That was when Jerry Dammer said at the time, if I sign a deal, I'm going to have my own record label. That was the kind of ambition of bands, which was really, really good. So you were both you were both influenced by the Scar 
thing from the and, and blue beat from the 60s but completely independently of each other and in different ways as well because they came more from because birmingham and Coventry had a big reggae scene yeah um so they came from that heavier reggae scene and and also i mean they knew all the old stuff as well um, but we came more from 60s music but but that was part of it was scar as well so i think that was a great thing that's always been the good thing about madness is that you speak to anyone in the band you'll get such a wide range of music yeah. that everyone likes you know those things always come in and we, we were never afraid of changing them a bit or you know bringing some kind of other influence in so it's kind of kept us going i think in many ways well anyway although it's so close because it actually was tony you described it probably as uh, you described the mod scene as a cul-de-sac, which it so completely was. I mean, it's, you know, it was a lovely... And whereas, you know, whereas what you guys were doing was so close, like Starlift, we all wore the same suits. We all, you know, and it was, it was early 60s roots and everything. But you just had that tiny little thing that made you something that could just go and go on, you know. <laughs> yeah. Garza, what's funny is at the time is that Rob, the guitarist in Speedball, his brother, who was very sophisticated, actually used to occasionally do the cloakroom at Blitz, Remember, this was happening at the same time. Right, yes. And he used to invite me down. You know, so you no, come on, I'll get you in. And I was just like, oh, no, no way, man. That's no. <laughs> and of course, now I'm like, you fucking idiot. Why didn't you go? <laughs> I, <don't know. laughs> I think what you maybe put in some context is in the UK, I, I'm not sure about in the US, but in the UK, it was a real monolithic culture thing. One week, everyone was Ted's, you know, in the next few months, everyone was into two-tone. That's then right, everyone yeah. was into new Rome, but everyone was a new romantic. You, you've missed out the rockabillies. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. And a mod, for, and, a, and it's, so it seems a mod for a very tiny amount of time. Yeah. But um, yeah, but that, so it, what people moved and shifted really quickly from one thing to the next at that point. So. But we had, a, we had such a vibrant music press and they were all vying to That's put right, the yeah. next big thing yeah, on the front four page. Four weeklies. Think yeah, about that. Yeah. Oh, Astounding. It's really it's amazing when you think about it. And and they all sold in the six figures as well. I mean, yeah, enemy, yeah. enemy was selling quarter of a yeah. million a week. America had one monthly. Yeah. Yeah. I know. It's, it, it is, it is crazy thing to think about it. And then lovely segue. Thank you for that guy. And then there were all the hundreds and hundreds of fanzines. Yeah. They were also, they were also coming out and, and there was a lot of, um, there were a lot of fanzines around the, uh, the mod revival. And I have to say, Guy, uh, you, you mentioned that cul-de-sac point and I've, I've sort of ac acutely aware of that. I, you and I, Guy, and, and I know Buddy as well, we were all big, big, big fans of The Who. And mm -hmm. so, you know, it seemed great. Oh, we're going to get our own movement. But other than, I'm, I'm going to be on it, honest here, other than the chords, Speedball, who never really recorded, oh, and a couple no. of Purple Heart singles. I mean, that's about it. And the Quadrophenia movie, which, you know, lives on. And it is interesting that on the other side of it, you know, what, what, what Madness were propagating um, and the whole two-tone thing, I spend way more time these days listening to, to Rocksteady and Scar and Reggae than I do to the, uh, to the 60s rock music. And, and, and the bands all had more longevity. And uh, interestingly, all of the albums that came out of two-tone, maybe not every last single, but all the albums that came out of those bands that then went off and did their own deals have stood the test of time it it's it, it, it's not a matter of um you know backing a wrong horse with mod i think there were lots of things that that contributed to that but certainly from the perspective of doing a fanzine when i when i look back at the fact speedball and um the chords were in the same issue and that was right when the mod revival was happening that summer i'm also kind of quite proud of the fact that I had the band called the homosexuals in that issue and spiz energy yeah. were in that issue. And I had a DIY records feature in that issue. So I think in terms of what, what um, I tend to use the Royal we, but in terms of what we were doing with, a, with, with the fanzine, it was always about more than just um, the mod thing. So when I actually became sort of friends with, with madness and you were marked very, very marked as a pop band, I was like, no, but madness are more than that. So we'll have them in jamming as well. We'll put them alongside killing joke. You know? Well, I'm, you were never really perceived as a mod fanzine at all. What was extraordinary about you, Tony, was that everyone had fans. Well, I knew, I knew loads of people who did fanzines. There were loads of fans and stuff. And, and it would be, you know, the local bands, whatever was happening this week, and everyone would be, you know, because when you're starting, everyone's happy to talk to everyone. But then you would actually go and interview Pete Townsend. It's like, what? Who? <laughs> yeah. I mean, how do you, and McCartney, it's like, no, you're a fanzine. You're not supposed, no, that, that was a, amazing. That's what completely marked you out. That's the reason I first bought a copy, I think, before yeah. I met you. I think it was Pete Townsend on the front of one that made me buy a copy of Jamming. Yeah, it is pretty amazing looking back at that 14 and interviewing Pete Townsend. 
and I, 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 I still marvel at that stuff myself. But I always, I always believe if you don't ask, you don't get. And that's kind of stood me quite well in, in, in life. And uh, I also think people are genuinely nice to kids. And it probably worked very well in my favor that I was so young because I, I, <clears throat> I hadn't had the opportunity to become too snotty. I mean, yeah, maybe I was, but hopefully, hopefully I hadn't had that opportunity. You know, a 17 year old with a big attitude can be very different from a 14 year old who's balls haven't dropped yet you know and, and, yeah but now we're parents you know now that you know that 15 is peak arsehole <laughs> right <laughs> if it is speaking, speak, speaking as a parent of a 16 year old boy <laughs> <laughs> you're over the worst <laughs> yeah exactly. i mean I, I was always you know i think I, I said it a little bit in the book about this that i do have the theory that musicians relax quite a lot more when talking to fanzines and you might, you yeah, know, you yeah. might have got a truer, truer picture than, say, talking to the enemy or whatever. Because I, I think bands always felt that people who wrote for fans were a lot closer to them. You know, that they were actually there. They were fans of music, generally, and probably of the band. And I think bands, you know, when I look at in, in the book, uh, the, when you talk to Madness, we'd really let our guard down a little bit there. And also, we sounded quite nervous as well. And I think it was we, you caught us at a point when we were thinking about the whole thing and how what had happened very quickly, as you were saying, in a couple of years. And um, but it, that was I think that's the great thing of fanzines that it you get that people relax a little bit more, musicians relax a little bit more, and you get a little bit more out of them. I think. Tony, can I ask you a question? Did you ever write about or interview a group that you didn't like? Yeah, good point. That you were told to do it or you were encouraged in that direction by a PR man or something. Or they were just zeitgeisty that you felt you should. I don't really have any great recollection of interviewing um, anybody that I didn't have some kind of affection for. Uh, occasionally you might come away from an interview um, feeling that, uh, that the band was not as cool as you thought they might they might have been. But, it's, it, you know, it's really funny. Nobody's actually ever really asked me that. And I think the answer is no. I don't think I ever really well, did. That, well, that's the difference between fanzines mm. and paid journalists. Absolutely. Yeah. God, do you remember the last time I saw you? Uh, it was 2007. <laughs> you, were doing, you were doing readings from your book. And I came along and I gave you a copy of the first Pope album when I said, Yes. And you promised you'd, you'd come and, and think about joining. I mean, you could have been playing the dog and duck, but you just had to waltz off with Pink Floyd. I just, you made the wrong decision, I'm afraid. You know, <laughs> Again, I guess the story <laughs> of my life. I know, you missed out, you missed out. Let me tell you. My choices. <laughs> yeah, I've got to work on my choices. Oh, well, I'm terribly sorry to let you down. Oh, it's all right, no, we've forgiven you. Oh, no, 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 because what was funny, because I did one really, really um, Reading where Roger Allen turned up, who was Speedball's manager, who of course had his own fanzine, the Surrey Vomit, which was a superb fanzine. It looked like Brilliant a total fanzine. total punk fanzine. When I met Roger and saw that he was a total mod from head to toe with a scooter, it kind of bore no relation to this fanzine he'd been putting out, which was this complete wonderful punk comic. You know, that it was it was actually really artistic. Yeah. That was brilliant. But I must say that the whole thing about fanzines were kind of the ultimate. It's interesting because, especially, I've always explained this to Americans, right? Which are like, which is they don't. Understand. They're saying the whole point of punk was was none of the nihilist, the negative stuff you see. The whole point of punk was this do-it-yourself thing. The whole point is someone's not making the music you want to hear, then start a band. No one's making you know writing the stuff you want to read about, then you start a fanzine. You know, no one's putting out stuff you want, you start a record company. That was the brilliant. That it's weird that that then turned into the eighties. Because the, that whole latest thing came from this do-it-yourself ethic, which was mm. born out of punk, which was brilliant. Which, which was what, and what's so funny that now is when you look back at the seventies, the whole thing is like, yeah, nothing was. Let's talk about things moving fast. I was saying, yeah, because there's nothing. It's just boring old farts. There's no music happening. There had been so much happening right up until then. You know, Bowie was still doing amazing stuff. There's rock yeah. music. There was there was tons going on. But like it's like there was two weeks. For two weeks, things were a bit quiet. So, oh, fuck that. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Roxy Music had gone on holiday for a couple of weeks. So that yeah, was it. That, it was yeah, very yeah, they quiet. Had a, yeah. Roxy Music had a long lunch. And so we literally <laughs> had to tear down the music industry. <laughs> Tony, the, the three groups, the three groups that you like from the Mod Revival, Purple yeah. Heart, Speedborn, and, uh, and the Chords, they all come from a punk ethic and, yeah. and 
and background and we were all Clash, Buzzcocks fans as much as Kinks and Who fans. I think Speedball were definitely from the punkier end, weren't they? They were from the punkier end, although, I mean, because um, Rob could have gone on, he, he could have been a great Neil Finn type songwriter. You know, he definitely had that. He yeah. had real pop <clears throat> He was, he was wonderful. Yeah, and, um, but yeah, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't care. It was a band. I yeah. didn't care. I just wanted to be in a band. You know, Frank, I walked into the audition and they said, do you want to join? I went, well, yeah, of course. <laughs> One thing I came, it's like, never occurred to me I was meant to like the band. It's like, it was a fucking band. There's no way I wasn't going to join it. I want to join anyone. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually also prepping for this, Mark, by watching uh, Take It or Leave It last night, which has got to right. be, be one of the oddest movies of all time because it's a band acting a version of themselves about two or three years earlier. Mm. Like they're, they're reliving something they did two or three years ago, but actually without the acting experience. And, and I'm a, Yeah, and without a script as well. Yeah, that kind of shows. Actually. <laughs> yeah, no, no, don't. I mean, <laughs> but, um, it wasn't, wasn't going to win any Oscars, that's for sure. No, but come on, with your videos, you guys had so, you know, there was such a natural thing. You know. Yeah, yeah, they, they they very became quickly became part of it, and we with the videos particularly, and with that film, we kind of learnt very quickly how to do stuff very cheaply, um, and and that's I mean, and the film, yes, you're right. When you actually think about the film now, it's it's quite a weird thing to recreate what you don't done only a few years before, um, but I think we should that was the that was the thing we wanted to do, just get the story across really about how bands start, you know. Yeah, and there's there's a lot in there, and you certainly see about Mike Barson being the leader. I'm not sure he ever gets around to asking people to join. He's uh, if he, if he's playing himself, it's uh, it's a very sort of monosyllabic role, isn't it? Of, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah are you in, are I think you I'm in? still waiting for them to ask me to join. You know, because I don't think they ever did really. I just that's, kept showing up. I think so. that's that's uh, the famous Keith was, Moon was line never, as well. That's, yeah. yeah. Was there never a contract of any sort? No, 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 no. Have they ever I mean, paid we, you anything? <laughs> well, I'm still waiting for the royalties. I hope yeah, they'll exactly. come, like everyone. It, uh, if, if I'm not mistaken, didn't you play Madness last week? That's right. Yes, right, in Portsmouth, so, funny enough, at a festival, yeah. Right, so they still haven't kicked you out then? Not yet, no. <laughs> right. I'm still sneaking in. I think you've passed. I think you've passed the audition. Yeah, maybe. But you're used to a thing with audiences, right? But as John was saying, I had an incredibly eye-opening experience a few years ago. Andy Mackay uh, called me up and asked me if I'd do this charity gig, and I think, oh, "All right, well, what sort of wide-eyed, fluffy animal are we saving or anything?" And it's classic Andy Mackay. He goes, "No, it's actually we need a new roof for the cricket pavilion in the village." <laughs> I'm like, "All right," and because he's Andy Mackay, he manages to get this band together, which is basically madness with with Roxy music. It's right. the mate is right. Phil Manzanera, Paul Thompson, me, Sug singing. And so we did this set, which was half Roxy music and half madness and playing, you know, because your bass lines are gorgeous. And it was, um, but I've never seen an audience do this, that when you play a madness song, if they literally all bounce, everyone bounces, which is why you, I, now I understand why you had the first, did the first mad stock. There was an earthquake reported because, <laughs> but it, it's, it's amazing. So you've had a, a lifetime of looking out at this amazing audience thing that no one else has ever seen. No, well, one, has, it, no one gets that. No one else gets that. Hopefully it's become innate and they've passed it on to their children. That's what we, <laughs> that's what we hope, you know. I think this is going to be the second episode in this, in this you know, podcast series we'll do around the book. And for the first one, I reconnected with the school friends who wrote those three lovely pieces right up front of the book. And one of them, John Matthews, I ended up saying, yeah, what was your favorite memory of that era? What was your favorite gig? Um, and John Matthews hit on John's Boys, which was the jam under a different name. There was a very poorly kept secret, I think, because Mike Reed announced it on Radio One. So it wasn't really a secret at all. Um, at the marquee in November 1979, the night after they were on top of the pops doing Eaton Rifles. It was a wonderful gig. Um, Guy, my recollection we're well, is yeah. that you got in. Um, uh, 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 even if this isn't true, please tell, please let's just pretend it is. Because um, the, the thing was hopelessly sold out, that you were smart enough to go around the back door, pick up um, somebody's equipment, and say you were roadie for the nips. Um, and that's how you got in the gig. I did have this thing. I remember someone gave me this idea, and I used it in the 80s in clubs a lot, which is, which is whenever, and this was just there's a big queue or something, just find a box 
Because there always used to be boxes piled up on the street. It's always rubbish. Just find a box. If you pick up a box, you can walk in anywhere because you're clearly bringing mm-hmm. something that's needed. I can't know the place like that. Just carry. Oh, have box. you seen the end of the film Seven? <laughs> yeah. yeah be careful about what's in the box <laughs> surprise oh, very good. Uh, well as 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 a starting point for that night that's a very that's a very very good memory so did you get so so what did only no, I you got in? in i was i would i was on the guest list tonight oh you got in? yeah yeah i was kind of safe that night because apart from it being a wonderful gig it was um it was 1979 and we need to talk about the tribalism that was happening at that point because at the end of the night that was the night that um a group of very very aggressive skinheads uh, charged the door and they were really after trying to get it like you know all, all the mods in london were pretty much gathered inside the marquee including the jam um i was actually about to walk out as the the first bricks came through the front window the the, the manager went pushing oh, me wow. Pushing me that. back in, in into the front. I know that uh, at least one of the security there got hospitalized that night, never never saw him again. And um, John Matthews was, uh, I remember him telling me this story like the next day at school or the or Monday at school, because I introduced you to my friend John that night and you figured out. You right. found- and we snuck home together. We had to, it, it was like, it's kind of like the walking dead kind of. <laughs> well, that's what, how he describes it. He said you would take it in turns as you went through Soho and then over like Waterloo Bridge and back to your back back to your, the safety of your, your your homes to look around each subsequent corner and and decide if it was safe or whether there were skinheads around the corner because coming out of the marquee i think everything was police cars and broken glass and the reality the reality is that we can glamorize and romanticize all we want about that that period of of the revivals we we lived through but there was an intense amount of i tribalistic hated violence. that element also now because like i try to explain to my son that that the music you listened to defined the clothes that you wore and you had to be prepared to be beaten up for wearing those clothes and therefore liking that music. Just to kids that, it's just like, what? Because I was terrified. I was very out of place and all that. I was so scared. Speedball were from South End and I used to spend a lot of time down there. I sort of, you know, semi-lived there in this mad squat. Well, it became a squat. It wasn't originally uh, with everyone. And all the time... I was in South End. I never once went to the seafront because it's where the Teds were. And apparently, right. and I was so scared. I literally, I never saw the sea in South End for over a year. Every time we had to go outside, if I wasn't with the gang, if I wasn't with the band and everyone, I was terrified because I was totally method, by the way. I was mod from the second I got up till the second, you know. I used to amaze me when I used to bump into guys I knew from the scene at work and they just have non-mod clothes on. It's like, what? No, you, you know, my you, thing was you lived it. You were Jimmy. I was Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there were also very strange alliances because I spent that incredible weekend that I wrote about in, in Boy About Town at that that building that became a squat in, in South End. Mm. And the mods and the skinheads and the punks were all aligned, like you say, against the Teds. So there I was like, oh, the skins are on our side. But you take you fast forward to that night, November 1979, and it felt like the true apocalyptic A-bomb in Wardour Street, except people in bands wanted nothing to do with that. And no, so, you know, looking, looking, back no, on sure. it, looking back on it as somebody who at that point you know, was in an audience, it was it was terrifying because it probably had a lot to do with why I didn't get to see Madness in 1979 because i probably felt i don't look the part and i will get set upon and i, I to be honest I, I may be right i may be right as well well i mean it's interesting because i believe it took a bit of a turn for the worst yeah that year and it did start to get very heavy i mean during punk and going to see the clash play i never really felt threatened you know or yeah. at all going to those gigs and they were quite you know they were really emotional and wound up you know the clash wound everyone up and you know, in, it, in, a, in a good way and made everyone feel sort of super strong, I suppose, and super, you know, wanting to do something kind of to society or whatever. But then 79, definitely, we had a big punch up at the Acklam Hall under the flyover. Oh, that's right. Yeah, uh, we, we did a gig there with a, a reggae band called The Tribesmen. That was a local area thing. They knew we were from North London and there were a lot of people from West London who didn't like us being there. So, I mean, on, even on the two tone tour, there were punch ups, you know, going on in the audience, because unfortunately, I think at that point, different groups of people, even different football teams or whatever, came to these gigs to kind of, you know, kind of face off one another and have a punch up. 
But when the chords were on to, we played, you know, the provincial, um, the places just outside. So Reading and Slough and those places, Basingstoke. And so you'd be the only attraction in town that week. You'd be coming through and it would bring in all the tribes. So you'd get the skinheads, the mods, the punks, the teddy boys, the Hells Angels, the Road Rats. And then you'd start playing and then it would just erupt. As you say, it was every night. Horrendous. Yeah. Well, so I remember going to, remember the Who did that gig at Wembley Stadium. And I remember going to that on my yeah. own as a mod. And uh, and I bumped into one of the South End skins. I remember one of the South, and, you know, who, who again was just part of the scene and used to come to our gigs and stuff. And I said, oh, I, you know, I'm surprised to see you here. He said, yeah, we've all come to beat up the mods. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, well, that's me, literally. <laughs> and uh, I was like, oh, okay. Well, thanks for the heads up. At least, at least you were warned. I mean, it is, it yeah. is, it is strange, and I think Jamming tried to confront that uh, later in 1979. The issue after Speedball and um, the chords were in uh, an issue that the Jam were in, actually alongside the Four and Selector. I think we did one of the first interviews with Selector. Mm. A night I will never forget because Selector on stage, which ho- hopefully people don't need reminding, one white guy and I think six people of color, and um, a group of skinheads doing a doing a sort of skinhead moonsault while Zeke Heiling to the selector. It's simply uncomputable. Yes. It was just like, what kind of world are we living in? It was, you know, it, it's wonderful when you pick up these you know, photographic books and you look back and I sort of do reminisce because when I come back to England these days, I'm like, nobody's tribal. There's like, everybody looks the same. Everybody mm. looks mm. the same. But I do not miss the violence at gigs. I don't no. miss feeling like you're Absolutely, taking your yeah. life But the irony, the irony of, of that whole far right skinhead thing with where skinheads come from was like they were the guys who hung out with the black kids. They were, you know, it's like, it's, it's extraordinary. It, it was this kind of shared outsiderness, you know? And, uh, you know, that's why they embraced the music and embraced, it was, that, and it's, and I, I think that even the 79 skins probably just didn't even know that, you know, that history would have been too far away for them to know. Yeah. It's only yeah. 10 years. And you had to take that uh, particularly personally, Mark, I mean, as a band, uh, because being sort of the opposite of Selector, you were you know, the only band that, was, that had been on two-tone that did not have a person of colour in the band. And unfortunately, I think that that gave licence to some yeah. of these far-right skins to decide that Madness was their band, and you had to battle that. And I think that's part of when I came to interview you for The Face, um, you, were, you were still recoiling from a, a really negative piece in the NME, and your distrust for the media was total, um, which was why it was that stroke of genius for Nick Logan to send you know, 16-year-old me along in a Harrington and short haircut. Um, but you really had to, you know, to, 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 to battle back against that as a band, didn't you? Yeah, but particularly very early on. Yeah, but as you say, the logic, it just didn't add up. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Nothing added up, you know, why they, why they were doing this while they were listening to this kind of music, but still, as you say, kind of making Nazi salutes and stuff. It just, you know, a few years in, it was really was wearing us down in the end. Well, but but then it switched from you, didn't it? It became the oi thing. Yes, then it exactly. Fucking you know, like Gary Bushel. Ugh. Yeah, well, I was mentioning when we were setting this up, I mean, I don't know if this does necessarily hold water, but I was thinking that sort of geographically, the you, you know, I just sort of have this memory, the mod revival felt very much like Waterloo. I mean, it felt almost like Waterloo sunset. It felt like South London going down to Brighton. Much as I traveled all around London from the age of about 14, you know, I took my fanzines up to Camden Town, you know, sold them at Compendium, uh, probably mm. a rock on if I could have done every single time. I always had this feeling of, you know, that area, Camden Town, which obviously Madness was associated with as being different tribally. Buddy, you mentioned in an email about the, was it called the Bridge House, the Bridge Tavern out in, in the oh, East Oh, Canning Town, the Bridge House in Canning Town. Yeah. That was the absolute furthest outpost, <laughs> wasn't it? That you went to, <laughs> do you know right. what I mean? That really, <laughs> we played there with Secret Affair and, um, it was chalk and cheese. That was not our audience. You know, they were not, they were not fans of the chords and they let us know, like Mark said, it's, that's a territorial thing. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Where did the chords mod thing come from? Um, well, we were, we sort of gestated in isolation a bit like Mark talking about the specials and madness. So over in East London, the purple hearts were forming at the same time, the chords were forming in South London, totally unaware of each other just because of 
circumstances to do with Quadrophenia, the original album, disillusion with punk. Um, there's a there's a hundred reasons why this was right. forming. Secret Affair born from the ashes of the new hearts. But they were all in splendid isolation. And then suddenly we all realised that there were some people turning up with green coats on. Because a lot of that, apparently, don't they say the, the actual real reason behind the mod revival was basically all the kids who, who got asked to be extras in the Quadrophenia? No, no, I mean, I joined in January, <laughs> I joined in January 79 and I walked in with a Parker and a Target T-shirt. Right. And that's six months before the film came out. So No, no, but, no, but it would have been six months before the film came out because they would have been in the film. Yeah. No, well, I mean, if you look at the film, the there's some very inauthentic looking... I know, the scarves it. with the wrong stripes. The, uh, and the, the, the beer yeah. mats on the Parker. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're asking how the chords came about, and and Buddy saying in in splendid isolation from these other bands. Is that that's pretty much true of Madness and the Specials and so on, isn't it? You didn't really know that there was a band in Coventry doing what you were doing in in different ways. We didn't have that connection. We didn't have the internet. You know, we didn't know what other people were doing. We we, we saw something in the, I think in one of the music press that the Specials had done a gig as well. So it was just little snippets of information, really. And you, yeah, you were just going on doing your own thing. And the only chance you would get to see other bands was actually to go and physically see them live, you know, and see what they were actually like, you know. Like the whole thing, like, you know, when Spandau Ballet started, the whole point was you couldn't get, and it was the same with the Sex Pistols. You couldn't get in. You couldn't get to see them. You, you know, and whereas now, turn up, someone's hold a phone up, that's it. Yeah. The whole thing's yeah. gone, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there is no underground movement anymore because short of taking phone, phones off people, uh, it, you know, it's going to get out, isn't it, straight away. Um was there any kind of fanzine element around the the, the Madness Specials two-tone thing? Because there certainly was around the mod revival. That's a very good question, actually. And yeah. I can't I can't remember. I I can't remember. There was like things like ID had just started, funnily enough. I, mean, I don't know if you know that. It, that turned into a regular yeah, magazine. And that started out as a photocopied fanzine. But I can't remember anything specific to two-tone at the time, I must admit. Yeah, maybe you got more of the music press coverage and and the fanzine coverage, you know, where we where we could do it. But you also got in the charts very very quickly, which um, um, unfortunately was not the case for Chords and Speedball. Oh, Chords got on top of the pops twice, right? Yeah, I remember. I remember seeing you on top of the pops. I fucking yeah. love maybe tomorrow. I love that. Song. Yeah, so this love the, key, love the key change at the end. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, gets it gets them every time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've, so I've got this um, this compilation that uh, oh. I, that, you, that at least Buddy will be familiar with. It's um, it's four CDs, and I I I've, I I am being honest, and I'm, I realise that this is probably not a great way for me to try and sell copies of the book, but um, I struggle to get through disc one. I mean, you, you know, I was, was going to say, what is that? Four CDs of the Mod Revival? Yeah, yeah, that's a big ask. It is. <laughs> <laughs> a single cd would be a pretty moderate it's stretching it. <laughs> yeah, to, be, to be quite honest okay, with in, in in retrospect i have to agree with you um eddie pillar just released a five cd box set i think it was and i found that very hard going in places and i think i don't know if tony's going to ask this about the why the mod the mod movement was here scar came up and it just went like that fast in terms of success and i think i put it down to the songwriting and the quality control of the groups so they were much slicker they were better musicians they were better produced records they were better songs a lot of the time and a lot of the mod revival groups i'm afraid just didn't quite cut it and i think the scar thing was just much more professional well it's also so beautifully defined isn't it it's so well defined with, with, yes. with the mod thing it's like what are you? Are you yeah, being yeah. the who are you being? Because, yeah. you know, because we were try we were basically, uh, I mean, we were what I, you know, Speedball were basically a post-punk power pop band, you know, and, yeah. you, and you, yeah. I think you were just kind of hoping that that sort of thing would hang onto the mod. You know, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, yeah mod can't be uh, Dave Brobeck. It can't be Dave Brobeck. Or the or, or or something like that, and the Who. It can't cover all of that, can it? Exactly. It's it's just music that mods like. Yeah, and I think something else that really comes across. This will take me back to uh, spending that time with you in Nottingham, and then getting to know the band a lot better after that. Uh, talking about madness here, of course, is the genuine authenticity of it. So on the so you were actually everything that I gathered madness 
were meant to be. On one hand, you were this genuinely authentic, I, I would say, working class band. And there were, you know, there were a couple of incidents that took place up there that, that because I kept a diary at the time, plus I was writing about it. So it's all, you know, it's all written down. Um, right. You had, you had that <laughs> element. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, it was incidents with the bouncers. It was getting thrown out of nightclubs. There were, there were, uh, there were incidents, there were, there was stuff back at the hotel that involved waking up Alex, uh, Alex Guinness. Um, there was, I mean, there's all, all kinds of stuff that for me, this was just like, you know, absolute, this is, right. this is what you get into it for, I guess. But there was also just that sense of joy and fun that was non-fashion. And when you're talking, Guy, you mentioned earlier about, um, you know, the sea of, of, of mass movement that can cause an earthquake that, that Mark has the pleasure of looking out on when he does these, these, these shows. You know, I had not seen Madness until that, that first night of the TV performance uh, at the Theatre Royal. And you came on stage and the entire theatre just bobbed up and down from, it was 10 year olds with their mums and dads through to like proper 20 year old skinheads you know all and 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 enough two-tone badges you know to to launch a few battleships everybody just jumping up and down and so the combination of of madness's authenticity there was just nothing was faked about the band nothing and Mm -hmm. and that was the image and that image was authentic and then what that also made it was incredible fun and i think that's something that you simply cannot you can't invent that it's either going to happen or it's not going to happen it just felt this beautiful balance of of you know proper proper blokes making this incredible fun music you know oh that's very nice of you but there's also you know the but the thing with madness as well because what i mean was it langer and winstanley from straight away yes that's you know especially now in retrospect mate i mean your records are being produced to the same level as fucking Trevor Horn records. Do you know what I mean? I mean, they were perfectly, beautifully made things, you know. Very much so. And they were a great combination because Clive, you know, was in a band called Death School. So he, yeah. he'd, been, and he'd, been, he'd been through that and he had really kind of, his ideas were fan- about arrangements were fantastic. And then you had Alan, who was a brilliant engineer who did, yeah, yeah who worked the board. So they were a great combination, the pair of them together. And I think you're right. I think what Buddy was saying, you know, is that that gave us, that made us sound a lot better and made us seem more professional. But it kind of puts you on a bit of a different level when you've yeah. got this fantastic sounding record as well. So it's, it's interesting. At the end of the day, um, this really quite surprised me. When I was putting this book together and... Um, it's the kind of thing you do you do add up when you're going through every back issue of the magazine you put out madness with the most interviewed band in the magazine thank you buddy's lifting up a copy guys lifting up a copy um you had uh, the cover twice um maybe even two and a half times that's the, that's why they happened and speedball didn't yeah <laughs> it's bias it was terrible uh, bias <laughs> damn it was jamming what swung it <laughs> Um, and you were you were in the very very last issue, which seems sort of quite appropriate. You were interviewed by Chris Heath, who went out, who who was already by then a very good journalist. He did right with uh, Pet Shop Boys. Um, he he actually also lives in New he lives in New York City. I was going to say he also lives in New York. We, we both live in New York State, and he contributed something for for the book as well, which I appreciated. We always felt there was that the people people sometimes or very often accuse jamming of not being a fanzine of being some kind of pop magazine and and if there was this kind of uh there were only one or two groups that we felt could sort of walk that line and i think we always felt well well madness are, are sort of our band might surprise some people they might think oh well surely paul weller was interviewed more in jamming. yeah i was gonna actually, say that would be that yeah. would have been my bet actually yeah i mean i will say one thing tony we, we, you know like looking through the book as well and obviously struck by the breadth of everything that you do go into a stage, I think you're talking about the Smiths, and you call it an era of new optimism or something like that. <laughs> so that was quite interesting that we'd moved away sort of from that dark, the darker days of 1979. That was quite interesting. Do you remember that? And I, I, yeah. I was really struck by it, actually. Yeah, and I think I just went for it, a new optimism for the 80s. You know, you're 17 years old. I was probably 17 by that point. And it, it does get back to just this unabashed arrogance of youth. You know, you just go, oh, that's a good catchphrase. I'll put it on the right, yeah. cover. You don't <laughs> stop to actually think what it means. Um, we did We did subsequently have breaking down the barriers. And at one point, somebody wrote and said, like, like just name me one barrier that you're breaking down. <laughs> and, 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 I, 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 and I realized that I couldn't. <laughs> 
but it looked it looked good it looked good on the cover uh yeah new optimism for the 80s i think that if jamming had anything going for it uh and hopefully had more than one thing going for it i think that sense of just sort of like enthusiasm carried yeah. carried it through um and i think we did lose that at the end and i struggled i have to be honest and say i struggled with including features from the very very end of the magazine because i just i, I even that final madness interview it's all a bit formal it's all just a little bit like you and know. I, yeah yeah and i think we were probably at the end of our kind of you know we were at end of us kind of the initial phase of the whole thing and we were knackered you know at that point as well so we're probably a bit cynical and a bit tired really i would imagine yeah we've all stayed in this game which is why it was very easy to connect with you and i think it's worth just just you know having a little chat to say where we've all ended up um the last time i met you in person betters was uh playing record store day uh, a couple of years back at yeah. uh, music's not dead uh, outside of it at the delaware pavilion in bex hill with your that's right with your other group um, so tell us, tell us about that and anything else that you have going on, because you stay well, very, very involved. Yeah, yeah. And I, it's, it's that thing of just trying to keep playing, keep your hand in and that. But I play with a guy called Terry Edwards, who's a um, multi-instrumentalist and a drummer called Simon Charterton. And we just get out there and have a blast, really, and just play grooves and just do all, use loops and stuff like that. And it's a nice outlet. And I really enjoy that. It's a different kind of music to play. And we get a bit more, no we get a little bit more, well, we get a little bit more indulgent, I suppose. <laughs> it's called the near jazz experience. Yeah. Was that like, like near death experience? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the 12 inch I bought that day, I think you've done, you've got remixes by Adrian Sherwood. Yeah, we worked with Adrian Sherwood. That was, oh, brilliant. That, brilliant. yeah, that was fantastic. What about you, um, buddy? I'm playing with a group called The Fallen Leaves now. We, you know, the, uh, the byline is punk rock for gentlemen. It's a kind of mod garage punk nice. hybrid. They've they've made four albums before I joined. I've now been with them for five years, but we still haven't made an album. I don't know what that says about me. Um, hopefully that will be getting made around Christmas time. And we're just about to start doing some shows again. So we've got Middlesbrough Brighton. You went down there for a, a model uh, weekender, didn't you? That I've never like... been. I, I have never, Tony, I've never been to a mod scooter festival as a punter before last weekend i went with goffer if you remember him from maximum speed yeah. and it was so nice to not be playing that night so i could eat what i want drink what i want get a bit <laughs> out of control and um it was just a really good interesting day and there was a lot of love in the air oh, i love no because i live in brighton so um oh well, half, did you pop down now. and see all those scooters and the... yeah i don't have to i mean they're, they're, you know they're always there because i've still oh. I, I i nearly got because i've still got one i've still got i've got a 1966 lambretta i've got an li 150 I've, oh, right. um, <laughs> wow. which i've had for, i've had it for like over 20 years and um but i never i've it's just in the garage i mean and i thought about going down the front but i thought well, it's not gonna be up to it is it oh we're playing the, the prince albert we're playing oh, the Prince okay. Albert right. up by the station. So let me know if you want to come up. I know the Prince Albert. Absolutely. Brilliant. I'll bring a box and just walk in. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Don't think it works and, anymore. And, <laughs> and Guy, in the uh, in the time that we've 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 got left, uh, you, you you need to share a little bit more about what you've gotten up to since um not make not making a single with Speedball. Even though I will say the songs were great. I love the songs. I have a yeah, demo they cassette were good. somewhere. Yeah. yeah. The first sort of proper job I had was I got the gig with Sylvain Sylvain from the New York Dolls, which is brilliant, which means whatever I've ever gone on to do in my life, I always have this perfect punk credibility. <laughs> like, well, I play for Sylvain Sylvain. Fuck you. Um, and then I somehow ended up in this Australian band, Ice House, because they were looking for an English bass player. I don't really know how. And they were huge in Australia. And through doing that, we went on tour supporting David Bowie and then did these festivals and then... Robert Palmer saw me playing at a show and he invited me to the Bahamas. I ended up working with Robert Palmer and then I ended up working with Brian Ferry and then through Brian Ferry, I ended up playing for Pink Floyd. And then, you know, and it's and a then, you know, terrible and, and it's, life. It's, <laughs> it's, you know, it's been up and down. And then after that, yeah, Madonna and Michael Jackson and, you know, Iggy Pop, the Pretenders. And I, mean, I, I just, I, I, all I wanted to be was in a band, like a moderately successful band. I just wanted to be in a band. It's bands I've always loved. And, you know, I never wanted to be this kind of session cat, but, um, but, but what I've done is sort of been halfway between the two. And I still, I only play for people I think are cool. I only get asked to play for people I think are cool, people that I like, you know. And I still play with Brian Ferry on and off. You know, it's the oldest, longest relationship I've got. And David Gilmore I still work with. And, the, you know, the thing I have now, which is a brilliant, actually the most fun thing I've ever done probably, is this thing, Nick Mason's Source for the Secrets, mm. where I started a band with Nick, playing all the Pink Floyds with Gary Kemp. My mate Gary Kemp, the two of us front it, 
and it's playing all the Pink Floyd stuff from before it was so important, from before it was this vast faceless obelisk, you know, back when it was a pop group. And, um, and it's just such fun. And, it's, and what's interesting is when I do that, and I look at Nick when he's playing, and I see the kid on stage at the UFO Club, and that suddenly makes me the kid back on stage at the Trafalgar in Shepherd's Bush or the Wellington, you know, it reconnects me with that. Mm. So it's, that, it's the most joyous thing. And like, you know, we're, we're hopefully on tour next year. But. Yeah, I saw it. I saw it at the Roundhouse and it was very, very oh, good. Mate. I really enjoyed oh, it. Oh, fantastic. Thank you, Betters. Oh, you should have come and said hello. Maybe you did. Maybe I could. He did. Yeah, we had dinner. (laughs) That's right. I'm surprised you didn't remember that. Yeah, that would speak to your uh, your wonderful memoir guy, uh, My Base and Other Animals, which it may be because I know you and I hear your voice. I literally hear you speaking when I read that book but i i reread it in the last year i reread it uh, oh. during during lockdown it made me laugh as much the second time as the first oh, time it is it is probably and i'm i promise i'm not blowing smoke up your ass here it is probably the funniest rock and roll memoir i've read oh, thank you it really that's, really, yeah, really that's it, thank you well that's quite a low bar i mean the interesting <laughs> thing you know no it's true but the, what's wrong with all rock because i read them all before I, and you realize they're all everything was everyone else's fault right. poor me you know poor me and, you know, it's like, it's, it's because the, the whole point with my book and, the, you know, the comedy show, I did, you know, I spent 12 years doing stand up on it, but it was, um, the whole thing is, the main thing is, is you're so fucking lucky, all of us, you're so fucking lucky. Let them know how lucky you know you are. And if anyone's going to look like a dick in your story, make it be you. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I think that's really important. The self-deprecation yeah. is Yeah, is but really... it's one thing you never, ever get. I mean... I mean, if you read something like Andy Taylor's book, you think this guy lived his life in a war zone, you know, like. (laughs) (laughs) Well, did he, he couldn't get room service. Is that what it was? Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Carpet was blue, you know. That's right. I asked you you to take the blue carpet out. That that is a really, really central, important point. Always, always sort of remember that, uh, you know, that if anybody's going to be an idiot in your story, it needs to be yourself. Because everyone loves that. We all love that. Well, Mm. Tony, your, your book, which I swear at and swear by, I swear at it because I'm trying to do my own memoir and reading Boy About Town, as you know, inspired me, but it also depressed me because I don't think I can get anywhere near as good as that. But you are so is, honest yeah. in that book. There are there are bits in that book where I go, fuck, I don't know if I could write that. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's jaw dropping at times. And that yeah. makes yeah. it brilliant. Also honest That's about other people. I don't remember pulling the night before the Bishop's Dortford gig. <laughs> I was there. I was I there, mate. I was nice. there. Was she nice? I mean... You're the first person who's Well, you could remember going out to dinner with me after the roundhouse, so I'm sure that you... <laughs> I will say, I got to see a lot of the world in a very short space of time between Bishop Stortford, Southend, and Brighton with Speedball in the space of about three months. I aged... I aged like six years. I mean, seriously, I went from being a nice, innocent kid who was just turning 15 to a vastly more experienced person uh, well, in the space of a few months. So I, I've well, got Were people like, foisting amphetamines on you at these shows? Uh, uh, he recounts that brilliantly. You recount yeah. your first blues experience. That's right. And I think, I think it's me who just goes, you do know about the come down, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> What's that? And we're all like, oh, mate. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I do hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation as much as I enjoyed hosting it. It was enormous fun. And, you know, these podcasts, yeah, they're promo for the book to some degree, but they really are intended to exist as a companion piece to the book. Just a chance to have conversations about the culture of the times, see if we can have maybe a bit of fun along the way, but also hoping that you get something out of it, whether you are old enough and were on the scene enough to have participated or whether you are so young or were so distant from the scene that it hopefully gives you some kind of historical 
perspective. I will supply links in the show notes to the various projects that are ongoing by Guy and Buddy and Bedders. And while you're looking at your phone for those show notes or indeed your computer screen, if there is a subscribe button and you haven't hit it yet, please do so. And if there is a ratings or review option there and you want to hit that, it really, really helps. Apparently, there's this thing out there called algorithms. Episode three is going to be my one-on-one interview with Better Badges' Jolly McPhee, without whom jamming may not have been what it was, but also without whom punk rock and post-punk wouldn't have been what it was. Very, very important figure on the underground that went overground. That will drop two weeks from this episode every other Thursday morning. We're getting these out in part because of the help from Omnibus Press's Greg Morton on the editing front and for coming up with the logos. Thanks so much, Greg. And I also want to thank my teenage son, Noel Fletcher, for coming up with the theme music. Nice one, Noel. And with that, we will see you next time out. Take care until then. Bye.